Hello and welcome to the Culture File Weekly with me, Luke Clancy, back recording the field just in time for the fifth wave, and this time the exploits of 1930s swim pioneer Mercedes Gleitzer, celebrated in a season of work from artist and long-distance swimmer Vanessa Dawes, botanical artist Yanni Petter's voyages around her garden, Jennifer Walsh tells us about the ideal 21st century music education, and we have a brand new radio poem from E. B. Golden. But first, a bit of splashing about. Mercedes Gleitzer was a pioneering long-distance swimmer in the 20s and 30s, famous for crossing the Channel, the Strait of Gibraltar and even Galway Bay, as well as for record-breaking endurance swims. Her work has now inspired Swimming a Long Way Together, a programme of art, performances and a swimposium from Dublin-based visual artist and long-distance swimmer Vanessa Dawes. Last week, to celebrate a 30-hour swim Gleitz made in Cork's now-demolished Eglinton Street Baths, Dawes hosted a 30-hour continual swim and programme of performances around a giant floating gramophone in the pool of Middletown College, Cork. Culture Files' Louise Williams packed her togs, unbranded changing robe, a microphone and dived in. The Limits of Metaphor Sorry, just as kayaks, that's the three of us. You'll recognise us by our boats. Uh, if you want to arrest or anything, hold on to the back, front or back of our boat, OK? Well, what are you expecting from today? Three sea swims. I just, I don't really know. I know. That's the nice thing about it, right? It's called a swimposium, which is kind of playful and serious at the same time, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, like swims and talks and music. What more could you want? Yeah, exactly. And it's not, the weather's not too bad. I'm Vanessa Dawes. I'm a visual artist. I'm based in Dublin. I'm also a long-distance swimmer, and all my um, art projects revolve around swimming. I've always swum, and I haven't. I'm not particularly good at swimming. I'm not fast. My technique is brutal. I'm not trained or anything, but I, I have recently discovered that I'm quite good at going a long way for a long time. My longest swim would have been um, 12 hours I spent in the English Channel trying to get to France. Um, Unfortunately, the way the tides and the wind were and my swim speed meant that that I didn't get to France. Swimming a long way together? Tell me about the together part. How does that fit in? A solo swim is never solo, as they say. And you always have your support crew, a boat and a team around you. The swim is just one part of it, just doing the swim. They're just turning their arms around and around. (laughs) (laughs) It is bringing people together from all different communities. And that was what the symposium in Dublin, it was very much about sort of sharing experiences, starting with that lovely meditation. Uh, Let's just begin, take a moment to arrive and land, settle on the sand, um, feel the sand beneath your toes and your feet, and just start to bring your awareness and your attention to your breath. And so your breath is a way to connect with the ocean. Swimming a long way together, it's a project that's... um, following um, the pioneer swimmer Mercedes Gleitzer. She was um, probably most known for being the first English woman to swim across the English Channel in 1927. She came from kind of humble beginnings. She was like a, a secretary typist and she just started swimming in the River Thames and then from there built up this like long distance swimming. She learned to swim actually in Brighton. Um, her father taught her to swim in the sea there. She also, when she was a teenager, actually she was living in Germany with her grandparents and she tried to uh, swim back to England 
she didn't make it obviously so even at a young age she had this kind of desire this urge to to swim this compulsion I, I guess Well, there's one image I find quite fascinating, almost unbelievable. It's uh, very beautiful. It's an, a photo from an aeroplane, and it's in the English Channel, and there's a little Mercedes there swimming, and then there's a rowing boat, a wooden rowing boat with a gramophone record on. And just from my experience of the Channel, the idea of a gramophone staying in the boat for a start is one thing, and playing records, but it's there. So for the Cork event, the students at Middleton College and myself made us giant gramophone that we floated in the middle of the... Um, pool that the swimmers swam around because Mercedes swam in circles. It's a little bit of a lull between acts and there's about maybe seven or eight people in the pool now swimming clockwise around the golden gramophone and some bits of sculpture lit up on one side of the pool now. It's dark and a little bit more subdued and um, a tiny drop of rain has fallen and the next deck is just warming up. Taking into account that her endurance swim at the Eglinton Baths would have been an entertainment event and um, also with musical accompaniment, comedic interludes and other attractions intended to amuse and entertain both Mercedes and her different publics across the long and wearying hours I've also included a few tunes of the era here tonight. So swimmers, this might lighten it up for you. Are they holding tempo? If there's something about long-distance swimming and community, and I think you've talked about the open-water swimming community, I always have some had the kind of compulsion to swim. And quite often, I guess in many years ago, you know, when I was younger, it'd be, I kind of was doing it on my own a lot. But then I think was moving to Dublin and meeting, there's a really big community of swimmers there. And you, anywhere from Scarries all the way to Greystones, there's pockets of people swimming. And I just found a real belonging I guess and really enjoyed that company I'm not really one for the kind of quiet solace me on my own in the ocean I, I like the the crack and the madness you can just roll your head off and act like an Egypt and just you have no inhibitions I guess what's next so the swimming a long way together we'll be going to Galway in the spring of next year um, where we're going to be thinking about um, when Mercedes swam from the Aran Islands to Galway to Blackrock and she actually finished her swim in the Spiddle uh, a bit short of Galway so and because she attracted such big crowds at the time there was a massive crowd waiting for her to come in at Blackrock at the diving towers they were a bit disappointed at the time so I think it was the next day or the day after she did a demonstration swim at the, the towers and I'm working with the Atlantic Masters the local long distance swimming group there and we'll devise some event watch the space <laughs>
Ruth Clinton there singing as easy stop the sea. Louise Williams was talking to Vanessa Dawes and you heard also from Eastky Britain and Anna-Marie Mullally. For the next stage of Vanessa Dawes' project, keep an eye on swimmingalongwaytogether.com. Next on Culture File, a familiar voice in a slightly unfamiliar place. We last heard from Jennifer Walsh with her latest Things Know Things, in which we learned that the composer and vocalist was back on the road for some post-pandemic music-making. But her other recent news is that she's been appointed Professor of Composition at Oxford. What will that involve? asked Culture File. For me, the most important thing is to all be in the room together and making sound. That is absolutely core, is just getting everybody in the same room. And so wherever I've taught, that's been key to what I do. Also, um, it's really fun to, to be able to sort of view music not as some abstract combination of frequencies, but also as something that's living and breathing in a culture and that is changing all the time. And even the music that was written 100 or 500 years ago is changing, you know, within the culture that we live in now and the way we think about it and perform it um, is changing. So that's what makes it really, really exciting. And, and I'm really, you know, I'm excited to, to sort of dig into a lot of that at Oxford. I certainly don't think I'm a pioneer in that, you know, there's been loads of people before me like Meredith Monk, um, but also I would say Tony Conrad, who was a really close collaborator of mine. You know, Tony was making film, was doing musical performances, you know, was doing public access television, homework helplines, you know, was writing books, was doing all of these different things. And and in a way, it's sort of it feels really old school because it's like being a renaissance, you know, sort of a renaissance person where, you know, you, you're interested in lots of different things. You know, we're more used to the idea of an artist who does lots of different things and works in lots of different mediums. We're a little less used to that in music, but I'm lucky in that having seen the work of people like Laurie Anderson or Meredith Monk, the most important thing is just it's trying to have the patience to figure out what is the right way to make the piece, being open to the fact that sometimes the piece maybe makes more sense as a book or makes more sense as an album or makes more sense as a performance and just trying to have the patience. It's not exactly that you're a new arrival in the academy like you have been working with students for a long time, but I wonder, does it signify a particular moment in, in contemporary music that somebody like you who has as, as strong a record in, in fine art or, or in visual art or as in music now is in charge of composition or is uh, is speaking from the chair of composition? The response that people had to the appointment that I've seen on social media or just, you know, in conversation with people has been very much that it seems significant that an institution like with this, like Oxford has this huge history attached to it. It has a certain image attached to it. So the idea that, that they're, notion of composition is something that they want to expand they want somebody who's interested in uh, free improvisation and uh, performance and video and AI that signifies a shift because certainly you know I, I taught at Brunel University and I've been for the last three years I've been teaching at the University of Music and the Performing Arts in Stuttgart uh, they were all institutions that were open you know open to, to sort of opening up the definition 
you know, it's got a reputation attached to it that the most of the people who've taught there up to now have not taught the sort of work that I do. So I think my attitude was either they'll want me for me, you know, and I have to be 100% me. I, I, if in fact, if I'm not 100% me, I'm in big trouble because if they don't hire me for me, then, you know, everybody, it'll all end in tears for every single person involved, including me. I guess it also influences the type of students who will want to be there. My sort of experience, you know, as a student was that the best sort of teachers are the teachers who teach students regardless of, you know, what, what sort of aesthetic they're interested in. They're open, but also that they nudge people to sort of enrich their, their vision of what could happen. So my teachers, you know, like I think of like Amnon Volman, who is one of my most important teachers, you know, his attitude was very much like you have a certain aesthetic that you are interested in doing that is you. We have to figure out how you feel comfortable doing that. But I'm going to expose you to a lot of different stuff along the way so that you're always being challenged. And I do think that a lot of composers now have grown up, you know, they grew up with YouTube. Their, their way, they have a visual, a very visual um, understanding of what music is because they watch documentations all the time rather than listen to CDs. And a lot of young composers, when they Google composers, they don't Google them. They go to YouTube and search for them in YouTube and they'll happily watch a terrible recording, but that it's a documentation of a performance. They prefer to watch that than listen to a SoundCloud track because, you know, they like to see what's happening in the piece. So I definitely think it's not just me. It's also a lot of other composers interested um, in dabbling in this and some of them going deep and some of them just trying things out your creative work involves an awful lot of the research process. I mean, you know, an incredible amount of interviews as well as computer programming and technological innovation. All the time. Well, I, I'm just interested in stuff. And I think I also, when I was younger, I had a lot of mentors and they were always reading books. They always were following strange wild goose chases about certain things. Um, and it all got synthesized into the work in strange ways. So if you're a composer, you know, my research is, you know, can I make a fictional archive of Irish avant-garde music? You know, that, that's my, my research. So when you're a musician and you work in this way, the classroom is really, really a fun place because it's a lab where you can try out a lot of ideas, but they're their performative ideas or their creative ideas. And a lot of questions and a lot of issues arise from that process that lead to discussions about architecture or infrastructure or materials in built, used in buildings or memory or colonialism or, you know, uh, city design. But it all unfurls out from making at the core. You're very um, intensely programmed now, but uh, when will people next get to see, hear, experience you in Ireland? Well, I'm really excited because a piece that we just did the premiere of about two weeks ago in Oslo uh, with Andreas Beauregard and the Oslo Sinfonietta uh, will be performed in Ireland in April as part of New Music Dublin, where Andreas does an eight minute one of the most virtuosic things I've ever seen somebody do an eight minute monologue about Britney Spears, where physically he embodies every magazine cover. I'm very excited. It's, it's always wonderful when you do these projects and you know that they're going to come home and that audiences at home will see them. So um, I'm really, I'm really happy. It's called personhood. Oh, that sounds great. But he doesn't play any accordion in it then. He no. does. He plays a little bit right. of accordion, but okay. mostly he's, he's doing a lot of physical stuff because he wanted me to write him a piece that would, really really push him 
Had you written a piece before? He was at New Music Dublin a couple of years back, wasn't he? He was. Yeah. In fact, my family in Ireland, my parents, the last live concert that they saw before the lockdown began, before the pandemic began, was Andreas in the concert hall doing another piece I wrote for him called Self Care. Became a big word. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Which became an important word and concept <laughs> and philosophy. <laughs> you know? Definitely. Give me 200 of their likes. Then I know them better than their romantic girlfriend or boyfriend or whatever. I just need 200 of the likes. That's what I need. Jennifer Walsh there, and there's no dates yet for New Music Dublin 2022, but keep an eye on newmusicdublin.ie for details. Meanwhile, why not follow Culture File on your favourite podcast platform for all Jennifer Walsh's contributions to the programme and many other treats. And while you're clicking, why not follow us on all your favourite social media platforms, say Twitter, for instance, at CultureFilePod. To the Garden of Yanni Petters next on the Culture File Weekly. The botanical artist spent much of her time in recent months in the garden her parents began in Enniskerry, County Wicklow, in the 1960s. Lockdown turned the garden into a wildflower sanctuary and a resource for Petter's quiet work, translating overlooked plants onto glass using techniques she learned as a sign writer. Culture File took a walk in the garden. Beautiful here. Yeah, I'm sure. Was this Absolutely. your parents' house in the beginning? Yeah. So this is where they came Yeah, through. they came here in 1956. We have a view all the way around from Bray to the Sugarloaf, the Little Sugarloaf, the Great Sugarloaf, and round to the mountains where you would see Jouse and War Hill. And then behind us we have Glen Cullen, so um, Johnny Fox is up there. <laughs> it looks like they would have pretty much had the same view. It's not one of those bits of uh, the world that's changed. It's fantastic. It's just... Oh, it's a magical place, and they they really found it a haven. Coming from Germany, they came from the from Germany after the war, so, and both had lost their homes. The garden is pretty much as my mum laid it out, um, back in the sixties. We have a walnut tree here, which has kind of taken up the garden, but the walnut that it grew from came from my mother's garden in Germany. It's a bit of a monster, isn't it? It's been there since the uh, mid sixties, so it's quite a big tree. Particularly since the lockdown, all of this was pretty wild because we didn't bother mowing the grass. We only mowed it there a few weeks ago. So it was all meadow and it was absolutely beautiful. The birds loved it and there were loads of bees and there's a fella has beehives across the way and we see the bees in the garden all the time. So it's just just a haven really. We're surrounded by fields and horses. And we, we can just walk down the lane for a walk into the fields and into Knoxink Valley, which is a nature reserve. Particularly useful for you because you spend a lot of time looking for specimens. Exactly. And uh, my last exhibition was all about hedgerows. So it was all about foraging in the hedgerows around the area. And I just love observing the seasons um, in the surroundings. This exhibition really came about because of lockdown. Um, I decided that because our focus changed completely and that's why it's called field of vision field of vision is is the area that you see as you stand in one place and look 
so I decided because we couldn't go very far and I couldn't be going foraging for interesting things out the country uh, to do what was in the garden and we've got at least uh, well I've managed to paint at least 70 wildflowers from the garden a lot of them would be things that just come up between the vegetables there's lots of trees there's hawthorn willow the crunchy leaves underfoot once we let it go wild for a few years we discovered orchids and all sorts of things it's absolutely delightful so we were kind of every time something new would come up i'd go yay <laughs> i'd be so happy and there's lots of clover in this and bush vetch and vetchling and one of the plants that's very important for uh, growing a meadow is yellow rattle and a lot of the, well, the farmers don't like it because it actually is a parasite on the grass so it, it stops the grass growing vigorously but it's got a beautiful flower and when the, the seed cases are mature they make this lovely rattling sound and we had loads this year so it's really uh, expanding you can actually think there's one here I might even give it, give it a little shake What I do is I go out and I, I gather material, so I draw from life. So I'd be gathering material and um, making drawings, pencil drawings from that. And then I translate those into uh, formal drawings, which are pen and ink. And then uh, because most of my work is on glass, so it's a uh, technique known as vera glamise, but I discovered it through uh, learning sign writing. So we would have been doing pub mirrors and glass signs for pubs, and I just loved the way the paint behaved on the glass. So I decided to develop my own technique. For people who aren't aware of it, this is kind of, as you mentioned your background in sign writing, this is something that you might be familiar with from a traditional pub or a, or a retro pub where you see um, kind of drink advertising. That's the kind of thing, Guinness mirrors and whiskey mirrors. You painted them? Uh, I have, yeah, that, that was part of my training um, to uh, do the designs and the lettering and all that kind of thing. The technique and the the, the effect is to try and enhance the value of the plant even though we're looking at wild plants or weeds so to speak what we're trying to do is make them precious so I use gold leaf to highlight the the uh, preciousness of, of something that a lot of people would spray poison on <laughs> so uh, yeah kind of pushing against that if I'm walking around town, I'll, I'll be looking at all those sort of wasteland areas where all sorts of things grow really well. And because the concrete warms up, so you'll get all sorts of plants that really thrive, even in the little cracks between the paving and the wall. So uh, I'm always on the lookout for those. <laughs> Certainly get your nettles, but you'll also get um, uh, lichens and um, the smaller saxifrage type plants. So that, because they don't need much earth, They'll manage to survive. You'll actually even find ash trees growing in little cracks. And buddleia. Buddleia is the, the butterfly bush. You see, always see it in chimneys. And I, I always laugh to myself because I, I think it's so uh, opportunistic of the plant to find a place like that. Nobody's going to get up there to get rid of it for a while anyway. Um, and I imagine it's uh, doing quite well up there. So it's uh, a whole other theme that I might explore is the plants that thrive in the nooks and crannies of our city.
next job. Yanni Petters there in her exhibition Field of Vision is currently at the Oliver Cornett Gallery, Dublin. And finally, a brand new audio epistle from Los Angeles with the latest piece of radio poetry from Eve B. Golden. This time it's a piece called Carmageddon. This is fluid Carmageddon. Karma. The sum of a person's actions in this and previous states of existence viewed as deciding their fate in future existences some would say karma is a tally of indiscretions victories and failures Simplifying karma to a scorecard, stripping it of its fluidity is a disruption of all that the universe has in store. To deny that the world is conspiring for good, or at the very least, flow. What goes around does not simply come back around. Does not simply come back around. Histories which leave scars, erosions, blockages, ripple the surface of our lives' linearity, like skipping stones on a lake. I am reminded daily that life is cyclical as history repeats itself on macro and micro levels. Leaning into history looks like bending prayer around the lives of the martyrs, the mothers, the queens alike, sainting them in order to transmute their lives into flow. Retroactive healing is to reach back and place a crown on the heads of those who walked alone once. So you might distill this specific form. Contrast and balance are elementally fluid. Karma as water under the pressure of carnation fluctuating. Events and people fitting into each other over time and separating. Karma is not about keeping score. That's not for us. Karma is the energy that rotates the infinite mill. 
to be in tune with the rhyme scheme of the universe, you must convene often in the halls where your ancestors live. Speak with them. Let their hands rest on your shoulders. Let them soothe you with their songs. There is no oblivion. No one fucks up enough to be reincarnated as asphalt or a cord of wood. None of us is evil or doomed. Being water is to shift, flow, harden, pierce through, absorb into, erode. Evaporate. Eve B. Golden there with a piece called Carmageddon. And that brings to a close this edition of the Culture File Weekly. We'll be back next Saturday tea time with more karmic steers. Till then, bye now. <laughs>